Melbourne AA Steps Weekend 2018. This is Chris and David talking about Steps 4 and 5. Hi everyone, my name's Chris and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and again, thank you to the group for asking us to do this presentation this afternoon. Um, it is on the fourth step and it's a complete illustration of the complete fourth step. So, and it's straight out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, um, I'll pass you over to Dave and we'll get going. Okay, hi, my name's David, I'm an alcoholic. Hey. Really glad to be doing this again. You know, uh, I'm thinking the first time we did this presentation was at the second Melbourne AA Steps Weekend, which was in 2006. So we've been doing this presentation for 12 years now. And it's one of the most popular we have uh, <coughs> about this fourth step. Just want to remind us how we got to the fourth step. We're going to talk about the fourth step uh, in detail. But um, the first step is about understanding what my problem is. So I came into AA and I identified with the first step immediately. Because I'd been trying to stop drinking for a long time and I'd failed and I'd failed and I'd failed. I drank for 17 years and the last three of those years was desperately trying to stop drinking. I knew I had to stop drinking because I don't drink like other people. Whenever I start drinking, I get this physical craving to keep going and keep going. If that wasn't the case, I could just have a couple of drinks and enjoy it and stop after one or two, but it was never the case. Whenever I started, I wanted to keep going, and I got drunk far too often, and in the end, it wrecked my life. And I lost wife and family and career and health and all those things ended up coming in. You know, uh, uh, peripheral nevitis and brain damage and multiple detoxes and hospitalizations. And uh, I tried to stop, and then I found out about the second part of this disease, which is this mental obsession. So that even though I really wanted to stop drinking, I couldn't stay stopped for very long because I had that mental obsession, that insanity of going back and doing it again and again. So I identified really quickly with that first step. And uh, second step, where if I'm powerless over alcohol, step, second step suggests that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, this step requires an open mind. If everything that I've done to try and stay sober has failed, I need an open mind, open enough to listen to what's working for the rest of you. Even if you're suggesting something really radical, like a spiritual 12-step program, which is what this is. nice thing about it is I get to choose my own conception of what this higher power is. AA doesn't try and tell me what to believe, but it does suggest I need to believe in something but that thing is up to each individual person. And the thing about this is this step for me comes from inspiration from others. I meet people who've recovered and I go, well, something's working for them. Uh, maybe that can work for me. So that then leads me to a decision. Step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And so to me, that's a decision to try and live by some spiritual <coughs> principles. My spiritual principles, not somebody else's, not being told what to do by someone else. But, you know, uh, the spiritual principles based on my own belief and my own concept of what that higher power is. But I don't know how to do that. I've never tried to live a spiritual life before. So to me, that's also a decision to go on with the program. I don't know how to live a spiritual life. But I make that decision because I can see that it's working for other people. Take this really radical decision in life to live a spiritual life. I know there's some people in the world who might do that, you know, for their own, of their own volition. They, spiritual people and they become and, and they take a spiritual path I only take it because I'm forced to because I'm going to die if I don't but it's a big decision it's a huge decision I heard online, read online recently someone uh, saying you know that third step in this AA program is a commitment to be inconvenienced for the rest of my life 
because it's a commitment to doing some stuff, like taking some inventory and being willing to change and making amends to people. And the big commitment is that commitment to helping other people. And I need to be, you know, if I've made that commitment to, to live this program, it's a commitment to be inconvenienced at times, doing what I don't particularly want to do. You know, I don't want to answer that phone call from that newcomer. I don't want to go into a meeting in a, you know, at, at, you know, when it's raining at night and stuff like that. But I need to do it in order to stay sober. So then I come, I've made that decision. I'm going to try out what you guys are suggesting, this spiritual program, take this spiritual path, <clears throat> and then what do you want me to do next? And you say, well, uh, now you need to take inventory. You need to clean up, clean house. Because it's pretty hard for me to live a sober spiritual life if I've got a whole lot of negative things going on. So those middle steps are often known as the house cleaning steps. And where I really want to get to is the last three. Because by the time I get to the last three, a revolutionary change has occurred. I'm no longer obsessed about drinking, right? But I need to do certain things to stay on this spiritual path and keep growing spiritually. And that's those last three steps. But the big obstacle for some of us is this fourth one. Lots of us balk at this fourth step, uh, taking inventory. So the fourth step made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, when I was first around... Uh, you know, I heard different people talking about this inventory and different ways of doing it. I know one lady there in Benigo when I got sober talked about writing out her life story from her earliest memories and, and sort of chronologically like that. And, uh, and I heard different things. I got sober before there was a world wide web. But these days, if you Google AA4 Step, you will find thousands and thousands of pages and suggestions about how to do this. Some of it's pretty good. A lot of it, to me, makes it much, much more complicated than it really needs to be. Fortunately for me, someone said to me, why don't you do it this way, the way it's described in this book? So this is when the, the book that the first 100 members wrote, and it describes how they took inventory. So as we go through this, Chris is going to read out of the book. And we're going to start on page 64, where it starts straight after step three. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock in trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways <clears throat> was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. So, this is a fact finding and fact facing process, an effort to discover the truth about ourselves. I'm, I'm an expert at stopping drinking, and I did that, I know that because I did it over and over again. And whenever I stopped drinking, life tended to get better because, you know, my health starts improving. Uh, I don't have to lie and cover things up so my relationships are improving. I'm showing up to work on time, you know, got more money in my pocket. Life would get better. But at the same time, you know, I've just stopped drinking and I'm used to drinking, you know, and whatever was happening in my life, I'd go back and have a drink. So there's a whole lot of thing going, things going on in my head, a whole lot of negative stuff going on in my head, a whole lot of Fear about the future. How am I going to cope with life if something bad happens in the future? How am I going to cope without a drink? Or 
whole lot of anger and resentment and blaming other people. You know, I wouldn't be where I am if that guy hadn't have sacked me. You know, I wouldn't be like this if someone else hadn't have done such and such. Right? And, and a whole lot of guilt and remorse about the people that I've hurt and the bridges that I've burnt. Now, it's pretty hard to live a sober spiritual life if my head is, through, is full of all this negative stuff. Okay? This is this... You know, it's going around in my head. Now, this isn't... The big book talks about, up until this chapter basically, it talks about the disease, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And then it gets to the, this chapter and starts talking about step three and talks about being selfish, self-centred. Right? Um, and when it's talking about that, it's not actually talking about alcoholics. It's talking about most people. The spiritual disease, the spiritual illness that most people in the world, most people in the world, it says, live on that basis. Selfish, self-centred. Okay? But for most people, that doesn't kill them, okay? Uh, but for me as an alcoholic, if I continue to live that way, I'll pick up a drink again. If I pick up a drink, it goes out of control because I have that allergy and it'll kill me. So I need to address these things because these things are getting in the way of me getting and staying well. So I'm not doing this inventory to try and find out what caused me to drink. I know what that is. I have a disease. What I'm trying to do is find the obstacles between me and a spiritual path. I've just made that decision in the third step to take a spiritual path. What's the obstacles to, between me and that spiritual path? And so this in inventory is about what that is. What are the obstacles to me take, living this spiritual way of life? And the first thing it suggests we look at is this one. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem more forms of spiritual disease. We've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. So the first thing it suggests we look at is resentments. I think this is a really great place to start. First of all, because as it says, it's a number one offender. One of the biggest causes of relapse is, you know, for an alcoholic is being angry and resentful. The other reason I think it's a great place to start is that it's an easy place to start. These things, the things in, 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 the, in my world that I'm angry at, these things come to mind really easily, particularly when I'm early around. So it's a great place to start. Now, as Chris reads this out, you'll notice that most of, most of what she's reading is highlighted in yellow. Now, this is the part that sort of describes why we need to do it and what to expect as we go through this simple process. But in amongst that, you'll notice that we've highlighted certain sentences in blue. Now, these are the sentences that are like a, a definite statement of this is what we did. Now, remember, this is written when the first 100 members got sober. And so when it says, this is what we did, it was suggested to me that what I needed to do was take that as an instruction and go ahead and do that thing right, before moving on to the next thing. Okay? So the first instruction we get is in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. That's what they did. That's what I need to do. I need to set this on paper. So how do I start my fourth step? Well, I start with a blank piece of paper. Simple. And I need a pen. Now, the other thing to remember, by the time I get to this step, I've probably got a sponsor. But if I haven't got one, good idea to get one at this point to get some clear guidance about how to do this process. Um, so I need a sponsor or someone at least who's been through this and can give me this clear guidance of what to do, what to do next, what to do next. The other thing to remember about this step, as with every step, is that it's a spiritual exercise. 
So I can start this process with a prayer to whatever higher power I believe in. I'm trying to put myself in the right frame of mind. Right? So the prayer can be based on the step itself. God help me to be honest, fearless and thorough. So I'm sitting down. I've just taken that third step. I've made that decision to take a spiritual path in life, to hand my life and will over to a power greater than myself. I've got my piece of paper and a pen. I've got someone I can call if I need advice. And what do I do next? We listed people, institutions or principles with whom we're angry. So this is really simple. This is really simple. I'm going to make a list of people and things that I'm angry at. So think of the person in the world that you're most angry at. got that person's name in your, in your head. And I write that person's name down on my piece of paper. Now I've started my fourth step. Some of us, you know, balk at this for a long time. I sit down to do it, but then I, I can't do my fourth step while there's still dirty dishes in the, in the sink. I've got to do those first. Or I find a new, a new interest in gardening that I've never had before. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I balk at starting it. But it's starting it is, is a really simple, simple thing. I write down one name of someone that I'm angry at. So I've got down my employer. Okay? At this point, I don't need to think too much about why that person came to mind. Put that person out of my mind for the moment and think of another name. So I'll put down Mr. Brown, uh, Mrs. Jones, my next door neighbour, uh, Jack from the pub gives me the shits. Right? And I keep on thinking, I, you know, I'm just writing down the names. It's like making a shopping list. You know? I'm going down to the supermarket, I look around the kitchen, okay, I need butter, I need garbage bags. I'm just writing it down, I'm not thinking too much about it. I know when I get to the supermarket I can pull it out of my pocket and do something with it. Right? Just write, writing down the list. I think back through time, and I remember that high school science uh, teacher when I was 14 embarrassed me in front of the class. I still remember that. Uh, can be people close to me, like my wife or my sister-in-law. Mightn't be an individual person. It can be a group of people, say the police or the taxation department. In fact, it mightn't be people at all. I, have, I can have a resentment against the principal. So I've got a resentment against speed limits. Now, everyone else should obey the speed limits, but I'm a really good driver and I don't like being late and I don't like getting fines, so they shouldn't apply to me. So I've got a resentment against those things. Or say the tax, I've got a resentment against tax laws. And I keep on adding to this list, my mother, bad drivers, add to the list until I can't think of anyone else. This shouldn't take very long to do. Okay? I usually suggest when I, with a sponsee, we do the third step, I hand, hand that person a piece of paper and say, start making a list now, and then take it home, finish your list next morning when you wake up, Say a prayer to your higher power if I've got everyone down on my list, right, just to make sure it's there. I've got this list. Now, for some people, it's a really long list, and for other people, it's quite short. I know one lady whose whole resentment list was eight people. These were the big resentments in her life. I know someone else who told me after one of these presentations that he had 280 people on his list. Okay, this is a guy who worked all over the world and hated everyone he met, probably hated them before he met them. And that was the joke he didn't remember. Uh, <laughs> Lee told me all the jokes beforehand. He's heard this before. <laughs> so once I've got that, I, I can ring my sponsor and say, now I've got my list. What do I need to do next? We asked ourselves why we were angry. I like that idea too of I do this bit of it and then I ring my sponsor and just get the next bit of advice about what to do. And so now we asked ourselves why we were angry. So I'm going to get an exercise book. I'm going to rule it up like this. The first column being who I'm resentful at and the second column is the cause. Now notice I'm going to leave a whole lot of space over here on the right-hand side. There's first two columns on the left-hand side, a whole lot of space on the right that I'm going to need uh, later on. But to start with, 
I take one by one, I take the names off my list. Now, it doesn't matter what order I do, it, do them in, as long as I do them all. Sometimes it might be easier to grab some of the older, less painful ones and do those first as a bit of an exercise. But I know I've got to do everyone on, on my original list. So I'll grab a name, so Mr Brown. Now, what's the cause? Why am I angry at Mr Brown? Well, I don't like the way he pays attention to my wife. Uh, he told my wife about my mistress, that got me into lots of trouble, and Brown may get my job at the office. So simply put down that, and it's just the facts I'm putting down. I'm not writing paragraphs and paragraphs or trying to psychoanalyse him or work out his motives or anything like that. I'm just putting down the facts of what he did. It's interesting, sometimes when it's in my head, this resentment seems like pages and pages of stuff, but when it comes to writing it down, it's only a few lines. That's just 17 words there about Mr Brown. So once I've got those things down about Mr Brown, what he did, I can cross him off my original list and grab another name. So Mrs Jones, she's a nut, she snubbed me, she committed a husband for drinking and he's my friend, and she's a gossip. All good reasons not to like Mrs Jones. Cross her off my list, grab another one. Okay, my employer is unreasonable, unjust, overbearing, and he's threatening to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account. So cross him off the list, and then my wife misunderstands and nags and likes Mr Brown and wants to put the house in her name. So I cross her off the list and I keep on going through my list, putting them into my exercise book until they're all in there. If I've got 280, I might need a second exercise book, but that's okay. They're only 48 cents in coals. Get your sponsor to buy one for you. <laughs> okay? And then I can throw away the first piece of paper. Okay? I've got the names in my, in, in my exercise book. And I ring up that sponsor and I say, OK, now I've finished that second column. Uh, what do we do? In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with. So the next thing it suggests we look at is how this other person's actions have affected me. And it's given us a bunch of key words to look for. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? Now this is a really simple process. I go back through my list and one by one look at each, each person and each line in the cause and work out apply one or more of those key words. So Mr Brown, his attention to my wife, well that's affected my sex relations, it's also affected my self-esteem because I'm worried that she likes him better than she likes me. There's fear involved with that because I'm worried actually she might run off with him. Uh, he told my wife about my mistress, that's affected my sex relations, also my self-esteem because I didn't want people to know about that secret. Brown may get my job at the office, well that's affected my security, that's money in my pocket, roof over my head type security. Because um, if, you know, if he gets my job, I might be demoted or even out of a job. And also my self-esteem, because I'm worried that the boss likes him better than he likes me. There's fear associated with that, particularly around the security aspect of that. Mrs Jones, that's affected my personal relationship with her, probably other people as well. And also my self-esteem, I don't like being snubbed by people. My employer, that's affected my self-esteem. And he's threatened to fire me, so that's affecting my security. And the wife, that's affected my pride, my personal and sex relations, and the part about wanting the house in her name is affecting my security. 
as you can see, it's a pretty simple process of this, picking out one or more of those keywords and seeing how they apply, how this, this other person's actions have affected me. But I think it's a really useful column because it starts to shift the focus. Right? Those first two columns are all about the other person and what they did. And there's no new information there. Stuff in the first two columns is stuff I already know. That's, what, that's the essence of these resentments. I know who it was that hurt me and I know what they did. No new information. But in the end, I want to learn something about myself. So this column starts shifting the focus away from that other person and onto me. So I do that third column and I ring my sponsor and say, OK, now I've done the third, third column. Um, I just want to point out that this example so far is straight out of the AAB book. So Mr Brown, Mrs Jones, the employer and the wife on page 65. I just want to point this out because this is, you know, point out that this is not my personal inventory that we're putting up on the screen. I wouldn't put my personal inventory on a big screen in front of people that I don't know. You know my four-step is a very private thing. It's between me and a piece of paper and my higher power and at this point nobody else. Okay. Now, the book doesn't actually take this example any further than the third column. So what we're going to show you from here on in is sort of our best guess about what this guy in the book would have put in the rest of his inventory. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to fertility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harbouring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again and with us to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So this is really pointing out how dangerous resentments are. In fact, it's also pointing out that it's not just alcoholics who get resentments. But anyone, anyone who lives a life full of resentment and hate is going to have a pretty hopeless, pathetic sort of life. Right? But for us, it's even more dangerous. The resentment isn't the insanity, because lots of people have resentments. Okay? The insanity, it says, insanity returns and I pick up a drink again. So the insanity is the fact that even though I know I'm an alcoholic and I've made the commitment never to drink again, I know what happens when I drink and I do the insane thing and pick up again. If I live in resentment as an alcoholic, the ins that insanity comes back. And if I pick up a drink, unlike most other people, other people might get a resentment and dwell on it for a little while and they think, if I have a couple of drinks, I'll be able to forget about it for the night and uh, get, get past it. You know? And for other people, that's fine because they have a couple of drinks and they stop after those one or two. My problem is I can't stop after one or two because of the craving. 
So, what's a resentment? Okay, a resentment is every time I think about this person, the one in the first column, what normally happens immediately comes to mind is the list of nasty things that they came that they, that they did to me. I, you know, and I think it, start thinking about those things. And then I start thinking about how much that person affected me, you know, how that person's actions affected me, and that's what that third column is. You know, resentment is re-feeling the hurt from the past. And so I start re-feeling that hurt. And normally my next thought is, this guy's a bastard, this guy in the first column. And I start thinking about all the nasty things he did to me. And I start re-feeling the hurt, you know, the bastard. And I think to myself, this guy's a bastard and he did all those nasty things to me and it hurt me, the bastard. And round and round and round it goes in the head. And the longer I think about it, the worse he gets. He's just this, he's just this bastard who just is so nasty. And the more innocent I get, I didn't do anything wrong. Right? Then I start, then I start you know, thinking about when he said that to me, I should have said that. All that sh- sh- that's what I should have done differently. And then I start praying that he gets hit by a bus. And then I start thinking about the next time. The next time he's critical of me, I'm going to point out what all his problems are. Okay? And everyone identifying with that. You hear the, the laughter. You know? We identify with that. That's what, that's what this resentment is. Okay? I know how dangerous they are. For me, I can remember at the end of... Well, I, I, I just tried to stop drinking. My wife had left and I uh, seen this doctor and he put me into a, my first detox. It was a place called Pleasant View. wasn't pleasant, didn't have a view. But I was there. It was a big ward, 25 guys, all in an open ward, trying to detox at night and the snoring was horrific. I hated the place. Anyway, I came out of there determined I'm never going back to a place like that again. I'm, I'm never going to drink again. And I stayed sober for about 10 weeks Really proud of the fact that I hadn't had a drink for that long. You know, two and a half months, that's, pretty, that's the longest I'd been sober since I was 17. And I thought I'd go up to visit my parents who were living in Nechuka at the time. And I thought, you know, when I get there, you know, they'll give me a pat on the back and encouragement and say, good job, 10 weeks sober, that's fantastic. That's what I expected them to do. But when I got there, I got a different reaction. I got, you know, how are we going to get to see the grandchildren now that your wife has left you? When are you going to get a job? How are you going to pay back the money you owe us? Right, so instant resentment. How dare they treat me that way? And dwelled on that for a couple of days, caught the train back to Melbourne. remember getting off the train at the old Spencer Street Railway Station. Now, what's across the road from the Spencer Street Railway Station? Savoy Hotel. So I walked across the road, sat down at the bar, and thinking, I'll show them how wrong they are. They don't appreciate how hard I'm trying to get sober. I'll just have a drink. That'll show them. So I pick up the drink, craving kicks in. Within days, I'm back drinking the way I was before again. So that's how dangerous these resentments are. I need to be able to get out of these, right? And I need to be able to learn something about myself. So I've got these things down, these three columns written down, and what do I need to do? We turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realised that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. 
Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry, thy will be done. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. So it suggests that we turn back to the list. And this time I'm going to try and take a different attitude to those people on my list. And it suggests that we're going to ask God something. So how do we do that? Well, it's suggesting that I say a prayer. So at this point I can put down the pen. I don't need to write anything here. But I can put down the pen and I, say that I go through my list one by one and I say a prayer for each person. I think about Mr Brown and I say that prayer, God save me from being angry, how can I be helpful to him? And I think about Mrs Jones, God save me from being angry, how can I be helpful to her? And I think about my employer and perhaps through gritted teeth reluctantly, God save me from being angry at the bastard. I do it anyway, it's a spiritual exercise. How can I be helpful to him? And I think about my wife, God save me from being angry. How can I be helpful to her? So this, this is just this reminder that this is a spiritual exercise. You know, I'm doing this in order to, to remove the obstacles to me living a sober spiritual life. And this starts to shift my attitude by saying this prayer. And it's not the prayer I used to say, they get hit by a bus. You know, it's a different prayer. Okay. Some, it's interesting, sometimes as we do that second column, just... The, act, the exercise of writing, da- writing it down and reading it back to myself. Some of the resentments, I look at them and see how petty and ridiculous they are and they just disappear straight away, even in that second column, before I get to the rest of it. Others are a bit tougher than that and it's when I say that prayer that that resentment starts to lift. Others might be even tougher still and this prayer isn't going to shift it straight away but remember this is only the beginning of the house cleaning steps. This is just step four. So some, some of those resentments won't be lifted until I've actually shared it with someone else in step five or becoming, became willing to change in step six and seven or actually gone out and made amends in steps eight and nine. But at least this is a start. It doesn't solve all my problems, the fourth step, but it clearly shows me what they are and what needs to change about me. So I've said that prayer for each one of them, okay, and I ring my sponsor and say, okay, I've done it. I've said a prayer for everyone on that list, even the ones I still think are bastards. I've, still, I've done it. I've taken that spiritual step. And what do I need to do next? Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The imagery was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. So it suggests we go back through this list again and this time I'm going to look for something that I've never looked for before. I'm going to look for my mistakes. In fact, there's two things I'm looking for. What did I do or fail to do that contributes to this resentment? And the second thing is our faults. And once again, it's given us a bunch of key words to look for. 
where have we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened? I'm looking for those four key words. So I go back through my list. Now notice it's talking about I'm looking for my mistakes, not my part. If I'm saying it's my part, then I'm still you know, attributing some part to somebody else. I'm not looking for my part. I'm looking specific. It doesn't say anywhere in the book to look for that. It says specifically looking for my mistakes. What mistake did I make? So I go back through my list, Mr Brown, his attention to my wife. What's my mistake? Well, I've been neglecting my wife. So I need to give that a label. Okay, I'm being selfish. Now, it could be that Mr Brown is a bit of a sleaze and he's trying to move in on the wife, but I'm trying to put that out of my mind and say, well, what's my mistake? Well, I'm down the pub all the time getting drunk and the fact that I'm not home has given him the opportunity. That's my mistake. On the other hand, it could all be in my head. Mr Brown is just, he's really just a nice guy, occasionally has a cup of coffee with my wife because she's lonely, because I'm down the pub all the time. Okay? It, it, it's not about him, it's about my mistake. He told my wife about my mistress, what's my mistake? That one's really obvious. I, I was unfaithful, being dishonest. Brown may get my job at the office, what's my mistake? Well, I was looking after my own interests rather than doing my job properly. So I'm being self-seeking. Mrs Jones, she's a nut, she snubbed me. My mistake? Well, I was inconsiderate to her. You know, she's the next-door neighbour. I've come home late at night one night, drunk, you know, singing at the top of my voice and got the doof-doof music going in my car and slamming car doors. I woke her up in the middle of the night and next day I saw her in the street and waved to her, hi, Mrs Jones, and she didn't wave back at me. The cow, you know? I'll resent me for a couple of weeks just because she didn't acknowledge me in the street. When I think about it, well, it's because I was inconsiderate to her, her the night before. So I'm once again being selfish. She committed a husband for drinking and he's my friend. Now, what's that got to do with me? Surely that's between her and her husband. Well, I'm afraid that might happen to me. So it's my own fear of that happening to me is creating that resentment against Mrs Jones. So I'm frightened. And she's a gossip. Now, maybe she is the neighbourhood gossip and she's going around telling tales about lots of people. What's my mistake? Well, I've done things I don't want other people to know about. If I hadn't have done those things that I'm ashamed of, I wouldn't be worried about her gossiping about me. So I'm being dishonest. My employer, unreasonable, unjust, overbearing. Well, I was unreliable, being selfish. And he's threatening to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account. What's my mistake? Once again, really, really obvious. You know, I was drinking on the job and stealing, being dishonest. It's interesting. I've got this resentment against this guy right, for calling me out for doing something wrong. And I've got the resentment against him. My wife misunderstands and nags and likes Brown. Well, I don't pay any attention to her, being selfish. Wants the house in her name? Well, I put my job in jeopardy by drinking and stealing. So she's just looking after her own security there. So that's, again, being dishonest. Now, it's interesting as we go through this process, I've never looked at my life from this, this, from this way before, looking for my mistakes. And I start to see a whole lot of patterns in the way that I treat other people and in the way that I react to the way they treat me. A whole lot of negative things that I keep on doing. One of the greatest things I learned out of doing the, four, the fourth step was that I'm nowhere near as smart as I thought I was. I was doing selfish, self-centred things and, but not getting the result was actually turning against me. I wasn't getting the things I wanted anyway, even though I was doing them for selfish, self-centred reasons. That's weird. I learned that in the fourth step. Now, you notice as we did this, the first thing we did was we made the list of names. We didn't start the second column until we had a complete list of names. Once we had that list, 
Then we went down the column and worked out what the, the cause was for each one of those. Didn't move on to the next column till I'd finished that second column. Then we went down the column and worked out what part of me was affected. Then we went down the column and said a prayer for each person. And only when we've done all of that did I go down the column and work out what my mistake is. The reason why we really emphasise going down the page, down the page, down the page is because AA's experience is this is the simplest way of doing it. Right? Sometimes people can get stuck trying to get across, going across the page. Going this way, then I'm only thinking about one thing at a time. I start off, I'm making a list of names. That's all I'm doing, just making a list of names. Simple. Then I, once I've finished that simple thing, what I'm doing is working out the cause for each one, doing one thing at a time. And that means by the time I get to the, the, the fourth column here where I'm looking at my mistakes, I'm putting out of my mind what the other, person, other people have done. I don't keep on going back and referring to those other people. And it really clearly shows me those patterns in my behaviour because I'm just looking at that one column at a time. It's like unfolding a map. I've got to unfold it this way first before I can unfold it that way and see the whole picture. And then I can see that whole picture. So that's my resentment list. I ring my sponsor and I say, wow, I've finished. I've done my resentment list. And he goes, hold on, hold on. It's not just the resentment list. There's more. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr Brown, Mrs Jones, the employer and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them. So the next thing it suggests that we uh, look at is our, is our fears. Okay? So I'm going to need a new list. I'm going to need a list of fears. Where do I get this list from? Well, I've already identified a whole lot of fear as I went through my resentment list, here and here and all the way through. So what I can do now is look at each one of those and give them a name. So there's a fear that my wife will leave. There's a fear of being lonely if the wife leaves and I lose the mistress as well. There's a fear of failure. There are, there's a fear that, uh, that people will find out about the things I've done. There's a fear of confrontation with my boss and probably other people on my resentment list. And there's a fear of financial insecurity. Once I've got those simple things down, I can then add to the end of it. Are there any other fears that I have that aren't related to particular resentments and add those to the end? So I've got a fear of meeting new people and a fear of success. I've got a fear of failure there and a fear of success, so I'm pretty well screwed either way, whether things go good or bad. Now, once again, for some people, this is a really long list, and for other people, it's quite short. Very often, you'll get very angry people. They've got lots and lots of resentments and not so many fears, and then you've got other types of people, not so many resentments, but a life full of fear. I mean, there's lots of different personalities in AA. There's no such thing as an alcoholic personality. We're all different. We're all different. But the thing about this step, the fourth step, is the fourth step tailors the rest of the house cleaning steps specifically to me. Now, the process of the steps is the same for everyone, but the details, the particulars are different because each of our fourth steps are different. Okay? This is what tailors it. So these are my experiences going down on here, and so when it comes to the, the, the rest of those house cleaning steps, it's tailored to specifically to my experience. So I've got those, that list of fears, and ring my sponsor, what do I do? We asked, our, <clears throat> we, asked our, 
We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went. Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So I'm going to ask myself why I have this fear, and I had a whole lot of practice when I did the, uh, the, the resentment list looking for my mistakes. So it's a similar thing here. I'm looking for what did I do to set the ball rolling? Okay? Why do I have this fear? So there's that fear that my wife will leave while I've been neglecting my wife. There's a fear of being lonely. My selfishness has screwed up relationships in the past. That's why I'm worried I'll end up with no one. Uh, fear of failure. I give, I give, give up before the job is done. I've hurt people and stolen stuff. I don't stand up for my principles. I've been reckless. I have prejudices. I try to be self-reliant rather than trusting in my higher power. I honestly go through that and look for my... For, that's basically looking for the same thing, my mistakes. What, how did I set the ball rolling? And then I ring the sponsor and what do I do next? Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. But we are now on a different basis the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We're in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us, and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? We never apologise to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage, they trust their God. We never apologise for God, instead we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once we commence to outgrow fear. So there's a little promise there, this is the beginning of outgrowing fear. The instruction is we're going to ask God something again. Okay, now the thing about this prayer, as with lots of prayers in the book, there are two parts to it. We ask God to remove the fear and to show, it, show us what he would have us be. So this is something I can actually think about. What would my God have me be instead of behaving the way that I've been behaving in that, in that second column there? So I say that, but it doesn't specifically say I need to write it down, but I can, it's something I certainly need to think about and perhaps I might want to write it down as well. So I say that prayer and say, okay... My higher power wants me to be faithful, wants me to be loving, wants me to be hopeful, wants me to be honest, wants me to be, to, wants me to be courageous, wants me to be responsible, wants me to be compassionate and wants me to be humble. Now this can be a really uplifting exercise. It is a really uplifting exercise to look at this in this way. Sometimes we think that you know, uh, this whole fourth step is about negative stuff and dragging up the negative stuff from the past. And that's true. But it's also about the future. You know? resentments, is all, resentments are all about the past and what's happened in the past and what I've done in the past and, and the pain that I have by re- thinking about that and reliving that. Fear is always about the future. Fear is what I'm worried is going to happen in the future. It's usually based on past experience, but it's all about the future. Now, remember, at this point in the program, I've just taken this momentous decision, this huge decision in life, to take a different path. Not that selfish, self-centred path that everyone else does, that most other people do, that most people do, but to take an extraordinary decision to try and live a spiritual life. So if I'm 
going to live a sober spiritual life, what sort of qualities do I want in my life? What sort of qualities does my higher power want in my life instead of behaving that way in the second column? So it's this really uplifting exercise, a different way of looking to the future. So that's my fears list and I ring up the sponsor. Okay, now, okay, I've done my fears. Am I finished yet? And he says, no, not yet. <laughs> now, about, <clears throat> gosh, now about sex. Many of us need an overhauling there, but above all, we try to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it, or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavour for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. So the next thing it suggests we look at is our intimate relationships. Now we know that intimate relationships are the source of some of the greatest joy in our lives but when they go wrong, some of the greatest pain. So I can learn a lot about myself by looking at these things. Now it goes to great lengths to point out that AA isn't trying to be the arbiter or the judge of this. Right? This whole fourth step is between me and a piece of paper and my higher power and it, nobody else. Right? But it does say it's a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So to me that means I need to make an assessment of my behaviour based on my values, not somebody else's, not my sponsor, not AA's, not my mother's, not my priest, my values. But actually honestly look at it and say, is this the way that I, sh that I want to be behaving? Is, that, is this the way I should be behaving? Um, so I'm going I'm to need another list. So this is a list of relationships. Once again, it's a simple list. I put down my first girlfriend, Barry's girlfriend, that fling in 1994, my wife and my mistress. And once again, for some people it's a very long list and for other people it's quite short. For some people it's alarmingly long, for other people it's disappointingly short. <laughs> but it's our own list. See, there's the other joke, please. <laughs> so there's my, there's my list and I ring my sponsor. I've got, I've got my list, now what do I do? Well, there's a bunch of questions that suggest that I, uh, that I ask myself. Uh, who did I hurt? Did I arouse jealousy, suspicion or bitterness? Where was I selfish, dishonest or inconsiderate? I know I need to look for those three key things. Where was I at fault? So once again, I'm looking for my mistakes. And interesting question, what should I have done instead? So that first girlfriend, what caused all the arguments and the eventual breakup of that relationship? Well, I threatened to dump her if she didn't have sex more often. That was the big issue in the relationship. I need to give it a label. I was selfish. One of the questions there, what should I have done instead? Well, I should have respected her wishes. Barry's girlfriend flirted with her, caused jealousy, hurt Barry as well. It says, you know, who did I hurt? Well, Barry as well. 
Uh, give it a label, okay, I was inconsiderate. What could I have done differently? Well, I should have considered their relationship. That fling in 1994, don't even remember her name, but I lied to her about my intentions. I was being dishonest. Now, why was I lying? Probably to get something out of the relationship. Who knows if I had told the truth, it might have happened anyway. So what could I have done differently? Should have been honest with her. Now, not all relationships end up badly. If you've got a relationship that's fine and dandy and loving and wonderful, that's great. But given that alcoholism gets in the way of healthy relationships because alcoholism forces me, forces me to lie and cover up right, and, and be dishonest and break promises, it's not likely that all our relationships are rosy. This one started out great but ended up being inconsiderate and unfaithful. Caused suspicion and bitterness. So I need the labels, okay, selfish, inconsiderate and dishonest. I've got all three labels with that one. And once again, what could I have done differently? Should have been, uh, spent more time with her, should have listened to her, should have been faithful. Once again, I'm assessing this based on my own values and, and honestly looking at my, my own actions and say, what could have happened differently? The mistress, I lied to her about being married, being dishonest, probably shouldn't have started that relationship in the first place. So there's my list of, that's my sex conduct. And uh, once again, we've looked at the past and now we're going to look to the future again. We've just made this third step decision to live a sober spiritual life. What does that look like in the future? In this way, we tried to shape <clears throat> a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mould our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. So now we're trying to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future. So I can write this down. I need to write this down. It suggests that I pray about it. And so having looked at the past, I can say, well, that's the damage I've done in the past. What sort of qualities, once again, what sort of qualities does my higher power want me to bring either to repair my current relationships or into new relationships as they form? So having looked at the, at the, at the list and the, uh, at the inventory, I can see how my dishonesty has hurt lots of people. So my higher power wants me to be honest, wants me to be considerate of the other person or people, wants me to be dependable, wants me to be selfless, and above all, wants me to be loving. So once again, there's this uplifting exercise, looking at the damage from the past, but now saying, I'm now on this different path. What sort of person do I want to be? What sort of qualities do I want to bring to these relationships? So that's my uh, sex conduct uh, inventory. Now the next part, there's a couple of paragraphs there that talk about the future because I've just set some really high ideals for myself and it says, you're not an alcoholic but we're human and there might be some other failings in, along that line uh, and gives us some great advice about that, one of which is if this is a big problem in our lives, step 12 is, you know, is the most powerful step of all for anything. Uh, we're going to skip over that because it, that, it's mainly about uh, after, after we've taken this step and just uh, concentrate on one last list that we need. 
If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. We have listed and analysed our resentments. We've begun to comprehend their fertility and their fatality. We've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We've begun to learn tolerance, patience and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we've hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. So we've come a long way. One more list that talks about we've got a list of people we've hurt by our conduct. I want to make sure we have this list because when we get to step eight later on it says we have a list, we made it when we took inventory. So this is my last list. Who did I harm and what was the harm done? Now where do I get this list from? Well I can actually go back through my previous list and pick out some names here. So Mrs Jones, uh, the harm done, well I was inconsiderate to her. My employer, I stole from him. My wife, I neglected her, made her worry about security. Notice I'm not going to put down Mr Brown on this list because when you look at what's happened there with Mr Brown, I haven't, he's done some stuff that, that I don't like but uh, I haven't actually done anything to, to hurt Mr Brown yet. Okay? So just because someone is on my resentment list doesn't automatically mean that they're also on my resentment list. Uh, from my fears list I might come up with some other names, my sister-in-law, uh, from my relationship list, lots of people there, that first girlfriend, Barry's girlfriend, Barry, the girl from 1994 and the mistress. And then I can think, are there any other, uh, other people that I've harmed along the way that didn't come up in the previous lists? I put down the hotel in Sydney, I uh, left without paying the bill. My brother, I borrowed his watch without him knowing when I was 10 years old and I broke it and put it back and didn't, never owned up it was me that broke it. Now for some, for some of us we think, oh who really cares, all those years ago it's a $10 watch, what does it matter? But for some of us, that little secret that, little, you know, that, that we've done to someone else, particularly if it's someone still in our lives and someone we love, then you know, that's that guilty thing. Fact-finding, <coughs> fact-facing, opportunity to put it down on the paper there. Uh, the ex-work colleague blamed him for stealing stationery, which got him fired. Now, I've affected that guy in a big way. Not only has he lost his job, but I've hurt his reputation. When it comes to uh, making amends in step eight and nine, I'm really going to have to think about that one. But at the moment, it's just fact-finding, put that one down. So there's my four lists, you know, uh, resentments, fears, sex conduct and my harms done list. In this book you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you've made a good beginning. That being so, you swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. So there we have it. I can remember actually completing this. I ended up, after three, nearly three years of trying to stop drinking, all those detoxes, I ended up in hospital in Echuca and, uh, and they sent me to a rehab. Here I am, 34 years old, a professional guy, but I had lost everything. And the best society and the health system could do for me here in Victoria was to put me in a three-month rehab. You know, society, they, were, they knew that I was going to kill myself with alcohol. You know, I didn't want to drink, but I couldn't stay stopped. And they put me into this three-month place, and that's where I was introduced to AA. I started going to AA meetings, and that's where I was introduced to this program. Now, I was desperate. Before I walked in here, I was hopeless. It talks about in the book, Alcoholics of the Hopeless Variety. I had given up giving up. I didn't think there was any way that I could get sober because I'd tried everything that I possibly could but I was offered a different way, a revolutionary and drastic path, meaning these 12 steps. And I got the hope, I got the hope by meeting people who'd done it. And so I was still in that rehab, 
the other, there's six guys. It's basically a dry house, six guys living in the house. Um, uh, one of the other guys finished his three months and left. The other four guys all relapsed and were thrown out. And I was left in this place all by myself with nothing better to do than to sit down at that kitchen table and take an inventory of myself. And so over a couple of days, that's what I did. And, uh, and then the amazing thing about it, the other book, the 12 and 12, talks about this is the first tangible evidence of our complete willingness to move on. This, this thing that I had of, wow, now I've actually done this. Something that I didn't want to do. I don't want to take this inventory. You know? Fear and pride gets in the way. But something I didn't want to do, but I knew my higher power and the program was suggesting that I needed to do in order to move forward. Just this feeling that, yes, I am capable of surrendering to the program, to my higher power. I'm capable, I've made the decision to do it in the third step. Now I realise I'm actually capable of doing it because I completed that thing. So remember, this is a spiritual exercise. It's not an intellectual exercise, not a psychological exercise. I'm not trying to psychoanalyse myself. I've had plenty of that and that's really useful stuff and seeing counsellors, that's really was useful before I got sober. And even since I've been sober, there's been other things in my life not related to alcoholism, tragedy and trauma, where I've found counselling and, and psychological help being really, really helpful. But that's not what this is. It's not a psychological exercise, it's a spiritual exercise. So I need to be honest and I need to be fearless. Now, I'm not particularly f uh, honest or particularly fearless. In fact, I, know, I find out a lot more about how dishonest and full of fear I really am as I go through this process. And I need to, but I need to be thorough. Now, uh, yeah, I, I can make a lot of mistakes with this. I don't have to, the spelling doesn't have to be right. I don't have to line it up and rule it up with the right colour pen exactly right. I know some people have to. That's OK, if that's your thing. Right? <laughs> The only really big mistake is if I leave, deliberately leave something out. Some fear, some resentment, some harm I've done to someone else. That's the one that's likely to trip me up. So when it says being thorough, it doesn't mean writing paragraph and paragraph and paragraph in that second column or in the fourth column in, of that resentment list. It means leaving nothing out of the first column. Don't leave any names out or any fears out. Okay? That's what makes it thorough. Not... You know, uh, Taking, you know, writing, writing and writing and writing isn't what it's about. Right? It's about being honest and fearless and thorough in terms of leaving no person, no resentment, no, no fear, no harm done out. And the other thing is to keep it simple. Okay? It's a real temptation, even for some of us who have been around for a while and sponsoring people, it's a temptation when we're passing this on to make it much more complicated than it really needs to be. And there's some books around the place these days that make it add a whole lot of other stuff in there and there's one in particular that, that leaves out what my mistake is. They put a whole lot of extra columns in the resentment thing and leave out the most important one which is my mistake. Okay? That's why I like to refer back to the big book because that's where the clear, simple instructions are. So there's my fourth step. We often we do this once a month in a rehab and we get lots of questions about it. You know, like when do we take step four? The answer is immediately after the third step. Immediately. It says so in the, in the book. It doesn't say take the third step and go away and pray for a month. Right? Daily prayer doesn't come into the program until step 11. So immediately after the third step, I take this fourth step. How long does it take? Well, not very long. We're talking about days or hours or days, not weeks or months. Okay? I like it when Michael shares about how long it took him to do a fourth step. It took him eight months and six hours. You know, eight months of procrastination, six hours of writing. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
And the other question is, how often do we take step four? And our answer is once. Right? I go into this with the intention that this is the one and only time I'm going to take a fourth step. Because if I don't have that intention, if I think I'll do one now and then another one in six months' time and another one in two years' time, that gives me permission to leave something out. It gives me permission to be dishonest. So I go into this with the intention of only ever doing this once. And then we get to the next question, it was about step five. And who do I share this with? I like the way the big book describes this. I don't make that decision about who I share it with until I've completed the fourth step. After I've completed it, then I have to seek out someone to share this with. The big book, you know, we don't assume that that's going to be our sponsor. I like that idea. I can remember writing out my fourth step and thinking, I had in my mind who it was I was going to share my fifth step was with and actually imagining sharing this with her and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to really explain this bit because she comes, comes from a different world and I come from this corporate world and she won't understand that. And, and I'm thinking about the fifth step and I realised that was allowing me to be a bit dishonest or colouring my fourth step by thinking about the fifth step. When I put that out of my mind and said, I haven't decided who I do a fifth step with until I finish the fourth, it made it a lot easier. So then I did find someone and I found it, for me it was an AA member and I asked him to share my fifth step. So this is the fifth step, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrong. I'm going to read that. When we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. We have a written inventory and we are prepared for a long talk. We explain to our partner what we are about to do and why we have to do it. He should realise that we are engaged upon a life and death errand. Most people approached in this way will be glad to help. They will be honoured by our confidence. We pocket our pride and go to it, eliminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So in the third step, I decided to live a spiritual life and now I've started down that path. Thanks for letting me share. Information about the annual Melbourne AA Steps Weekend is available from www.stepsweekend.com aagroup.org.au Thanks for letting us share.